0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney.
1: And I'm Andrew Kleinman.
0: On today's episode, we are pleased to welcome Susan Nyman to talk about her new book, Left Is Not Woke. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, The views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with our guest Susan Nyman. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few moments to talk about some current events. We're recording this current events segment on April 24th, uh, Monday, and... Uh, The breaking news as of 10 minutes ago today is that Tucker Carlson is leaving Fox News
1: Bye.
0: um, Bye. as part of the ongoing fallout from the Dominion voting machines lawsuit against Fox News. So we're going to be talking about in this current events section, the the fallout from the Dominion trial with Fox News, as well as the general context of these lawsuits against the right wing fake news machine, you know, the possible ramifications of, of all this. Most people know last week uh, at the very last minute, just before hours before the trial was to start with Dominion and Fox, the Fox decided to settle. And so we were deprived of the spectacle of seeing Tucker Carlson and all of his Fox commentator friends having to testify in court about uh, the fact that they knew they were lying to their audience about electric conspiracy theories. I don't know about you, Andrew. I was initially disappointed. Uh, because I was hoping that this process would be as painful and humiliating for Fox as possible. In fact, they, they got off with the settlement. They didn't, didn't have to apologize on air for spreading lies about Dominion.
1: Yeah, and actually they didn't apologize nor even really come out and say we lied about the election. They, they sort of, we acknowledged the the court finding that certain things we said were untrue. But I didn't share this, oh, it's Dominion caved or Dominion sold us out. I I didn't buy any of that stuff. There's a limit to what civil lawsuits can do.
0: Yeah, they weren't in it to fix the problem of post-truth or fascist propaganda. They were in it to make some money and protect their company's bottom line. So I can see why it made sense for them.
1: Yeah, and what could it do anyway? I mean, it couldn't do a lot more. This whole idea that you would have Tucker Carlson, Maria Bartiromo, Murdoch on the stand, weeping and a Perry Mason moment, that wasn't going to happen because TV and radio were not going to be allowed into the courtroom. You know, reporters would be allowed, and you'd see a sketch, and people would report, you know, so-and-so said this. But we know what they've said. There's been discovery. They testified. Lawrence O'Donnell keeps making the, the point. Everything that they were going to say, they've already said. And what a trial would do, what the defamation trial, if it had gone ahead and what that trial would have done, would just to be re- to rehash for the jury everything that we've already found out already. So there wasn't going to be any discovery of new facts, much less some televised and live humiliation of these people. That wasn't going to happen. Could you get an apology? Sure. Could you get Fox News? To spend more than fifteen seconds on reporting it, I don't think so.
0: <laughs> yeah, among the many, yeah, among the interesting future developments that the people are talking about, obviously, are is the Smartmatic lawsuit against Fox News, as well as pending lawsuits against Newsmax, One America News, Michael Lindell, Rudy Giuliani. And other you know individuals and corporations that spread the same lies about election falsehoods and voting machines. While Fox News can absorb you know multi-million dollar lawsuit, it is very unlikely that the same can be said for Newsmax or One American News, which are much smaller operations. Those companies could be destroyed by these lawsuits, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And God knows what's going to happen at Fox. Because what did Fox do? Uh, OAN, Newsmax started to take their followers because they were going, the other ones, down the line with the election theft lies. Fox was not. Okay, so they started to lose their viewership and they got panicky. And that's where this all has played out. Now, what is Fox doing? It's saying, goodbye, Tucker. Where are his his viewers going to go? What if he goes to OAN or Newsmax or, or sets up his own God knows what what he's going to do. What has been revealed, especially because of all of the news coverage of this lawsuit. It's come out that Fox, the hosts, Murdoch, none of them believed the election lies. They thought it was terrible, but they it, it was a question of money. It was a question of keeping their base, Trump's base, watching. So they showed an incredible amount of hypocrisy, disrespect for their viewers. They think they're a bunch of idiots and clowns, but the idiot clowns viewers, they stick with this they cared, they would hear that Fox didn't believe any of this stuff. It's all a lie. That's not what they want to hear. That that seems to be the key thing that has like caught the attention of a lot of people is no way, no how are you going to change these people's minds because they're not concerned with the facts. They want to hear this right-wing morality play again and again and yeah, again.
0: it's not really... There for news purposes. It's just angry therapy. People just want to hear the same hate speech all, all day long in order to sort of keep up there. Yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, you know, George Orwell writes a book, you know, 1984, They Got Every Day Two Minutes Hate. This is like 24 7 hate, right? And that's where, you know, a lot of people <laughs> live. What's going to happen? I mean, Tucker Carlson's gone. What? So he goes to OAN. OAN's hit with these lawsuits. It goes to Newsmax. They're, they're They're hit with it. So, so, the, the people who were last week poo pooing this Dominion settlement look at it in light of Tucker Carlson getting the axe so quickly. And if Tucker Carlson's gone, what about our good friend, you know, Glenn Greenwald and, and Matt Taibbi? What's, what's, what's going to happen to all of these people?
0: Right, right. Uh,
1: they're not doing very well. And, and, and also, Mike Lindell's already been hit, not with a, a this kind of a thing, but he baited everybody about his election lie data. He said, if you can prove that these data are fake, I'll cough up money and this guy did so he was actually a conservative republican data analyst but he proved it was fake went to binding arbitration and they said cough up five million dollars that just happened last last week so he, he's already you know on the hook for for five million plus uh, all the legal issues he's still got in front of him things are not going very well for these people but what what happens when fox lawyers begin to take over and say you gotta yeah you can't say, can't that. say you this can't say you can't, this. can't say that what where where do, where do these viewers go
0: and, and even the people who have tried to go to go to loan like the alex jones types um you know alex jones also has not done well with defamation suits recently so it's not like they can just start their own podcast and get a small advertising base and fund their career as nazi propagandists out in the wild because the defamation suits will still come for them if they're they piss the right people off so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it could be that the the type of propaganda produced by Fox News and other its competitors is going to have to be just more vague and subtle with the sort of the way it says things in order to evade lawsuits. It'll get more sophisticated in the, the way it plays with the truth.
1: Right. But what is going to be the effect of that? Like on uh, electoralvote.com, this is, you know, their their projection, their their prediction about what's going to happen once the lawyers at Fox take over and say, here's how we're going to do things. So they say statements like... Trump won and the election was stolen from him by Dominion's rigged machines, that's going to be replaced by lawyer speak. Like, some people believe that evidence exists showing that some election results reported by some media outlets may not be entirely accurate. If you're a a right-wing Trumpite MAGA, loony, stockpiling AR-15s. This is not going to be what you want to hear. Some people believe that evidence exists, showing that some election results reported by some media outlets may not be entirely accurate. They're going to get bored.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, they can also find plenty of other things to entertain their base with that don't involve actionable, defamatory claims. They can just entertain their base by talking about trans people using bathrooms or M&Ms or trans people eating M&Ms or whatever, Mr. Potato Head reading about black history, I don't know, whatever the, the angry trend of the week is. So it could be that they just, they just have to focus on those things and they know they can't do stories that actually involve like involved conspiracy theories that make specific claims, truth claims that they can't.
1: Sure. And they can do that for a good while. The thing is 2024 election is next year. You know, there's already campaigning, and one Donald J. Trump isn't going to give up this election lie. He's going to make that. the. the and so how does Fox report this? And what do the commentators say? And how, how do they talk about it while they carefully distance themselves from the claims that he's making? And if, if they have him on the air and interview him, how do they distance themselves from the claims that he's making? It, it, it's Once truth becomes... A weapon in the fight back against this is its not going to go away that easily. I mean, it, it, it's going to cause them, I think, a good deal of problems. Maybe they're smart enough to weasel they, their way around it. Certainly they can stay on the right side of the law. Can they stay on the right side of the law and keep their viewership? I, I don't know. I mean, Tucker Carlson was already having problems with advertising, but he was like the cash cow for a while.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, this is huge. I mean, he is. The face of fox news he has supplanted or gone far beyond all the other crazy people on fox news to become uh the face of of their politics and what they represent so it's pretty amazing that he's been kicked off the 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 channel it's incredible
1: well, let's just tell the listeners we, we we were prepared to do another segment a whole different topic for this current event segment. This news breaks, and we're like, okay, now we got to do this. This is yeah, this is big news. Stunning. So yeah, I mean that that's how big we 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 yeah. We, I mean it's pretty jaw
0: dropping. I.
1: Yeah, it, more, more than even the Dominion settlement as such, but it was, it's clearly a, a spinoff of the, of the Dominion settlement, but it's it really shows that Fox has been damaged. I, I think that's what it really does show.
0: I mean, you know, it's not just that he's the most important figure in Fox News. He's one of the most influential voices in American politics. For sure. I mean, his following, the way he can drum up his base. I don't know if there, there's anyone comparable in American politics who has that sort of rabid following and that sort of relationship with the base that this constant symbiotic relationship it was such a mass of people i mean i can't think of anyone at the top of my head
1: well there was limbaugh and there was alex jones
0: yeah there's alex jones there's hannity yeah but i mean tucker carlson is just on a whole other level with right. the sort of rapid bigotry and violent mass base and the constant feeding off of each other, you know, that he's just feeding off of like the anger of the base and then they're feeding off of whatever narrative he's able to spin out of the anger and they're just kind of spiraling into fascist insanity together. I, I mean, I don't think anyone else has that kind of far-reaching influence in politics. So it's pretty, it's its a real takedown. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that for now. Up next, our conversation with philosopher Susan Susan Nyman.
1: We're very pleased to have as our guest on the podcast today, Professor Susan Nyman. She's the author of a new book, Left Is Not Woke. She is the director of the Einstein Forum in Germany. She was born in Atlanta, Georgia. She studied philosophy at Harvard and at the Free University of Berlin. Prior to her present position, she was professor of philosophy at Yale University and Tel Aviv University. Uh, She came to the Einstein Forum in 2000. Her other works include Slow Fire, Jewish Notes from Berlin, The Unity of Reason, Rereading Kant, Evil in Modern Thought, Moral Clarity, A Guide for Grown-Up Idealists, and Why Grow Up, Subversive Thoughts for an Infantile Age. And the most recent book of hers, uh, prior to the one we'll be discussing today, is entitled Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. So thank you very much for uh, joining us on Radio for Humanity. But, well, let's
0: jump in and start talking about your new book, Leftist Woke. I think the first thing we should probably establish for listeners is just, you know, here in the United States, we hear like a nonstop attack on wokeness from the authoritarian right, the Ron DeSantis of the world. And it's not just a rhetorical thing. It's like a real violent attack on rights of a lot of Americans. And you know the drill, you know, the, the context. So I think our listeners need to understand, like, from what perspective you're criticism of what you call woke is is coming from?
2: Well, first of all, I should tell you and your listeners that um, this is not a purely uh, United States concept. Um, It's really quite broad, and not only in Europe, where the discussion is very similar to the discussion in the United States. The book has been um, translated into Korean, it's going into Brazilian I mean, there's um, there's deep interest in this subject. So, I mean, there are sort of local nuance differences from country to country, but it's the same or it's a very similar set of problems internationally at the moment, perhaps proving that America is still the hegemon. I don't know. When I told quite a number of friends that I was going to be writing this book. I was told, oh, for God's sake, Susan, don't use the word woke in the title. It will be taken as giving aid and comfort to the right, who at this moment in time, again, not just in the United States, construe any concern with social justice on a whole range of issues to be woke and thereby dismissible. And I found this response to be actually a standard left-wing problem that we are afraid of criticizing people who we take to be in our own ranks or to generally share some of our goals simply because they're criticized by uh, people who very distinctly don't share our goals. I... Wrote this book really as a result of conversations that I had been having over a couple of years with friends in several countries who would talk about some woke excess. And I'll explain what those are in a moment and say, gosh, I guess I'm not left anymore. And after thinking about this for a long time and hearing this from many voices, I said, you know, actually, you are left uh, just as I am. It's the woke who are not left. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I think what's confusing in the entire discussion is that the woke appeal to traditionally left-wing emotions, that is empathy for people who are marginalized, indignation um, at injustice, determination to right historical wrongs as far as possible all of those are goals that i absolutely share and have shared all my life but they're undermined by a range of theories here i hold foucault to be responsible one of the worst people responsible but you know there are other people who i discuss in the book a, a range of theories and theoretical assumptions that are actually quite reactionary and that undercut the goals that their progressive emotions support So try to make sure that you can't assimilate me to Ron DeSantis or Rishi Sunak. I do say on the very first page of the book that I identify as a socialist and a leftist, not a liberal, and try to explain what that means. But it's a very different kind of critique, independently of my entire life and work and my last book, uh, which was about historical justice and historical memory. Even without that, I say very clearly at the beginning of the book, this is uh, this book written by somebody who's not even a liberal, but who's squarely on the left. And I talk a little bit about what distinguishes left from liberal or socialist from liberal.
1: Susan... As you know, I mean, the term woke has just become like the word of the year. People are using it to refer to almost anything, how cartoon m ms are dressed, remote work for federal workers is called woke, pay for interns is called woke, and, and so forth. Do you think that there is some essence of wokeness that you're objecting to uh, in in the book, or Alternatively, do you regard the book as a critique of particular ideas and currents on the left that have been called woke rather than wokeness as such?
2: Read some of the statements that are made in the daily papers. You know, the the term has become so inflated that it's almost ridiculous. And it basically is just used as a cuss word to dismiss anything that the right doesn't like. Let me say that I think it does several things. Woke emphasizes the ways in which certain groups have been denied justice and wants to rectify that. The problem is that in focusing on inequalities of power, it often loses the concept of justice itself, which is absolutely central to a genuine leftist position. Woke is the concern for different people who have been marginalized, but it winds up in essentializing the qualities that are marginalized. Um, so race and gender being the main ones, but sometimes also different health questions. And we really have gotten to the point where we focus on the parts of identities that are most marginalized, and reduces people to their trauma. And it's a very dangerous form of identity seeking. Uh, The truth is, I don't believe that we have any single identity at all. I believe that all of us have myriad identities, different ones come to the fore at different times. But the focus on identity, and particularly on traumatized identity, is absolutely singular for the, the left, and a third point would be saying that woke is the demand that people and nations face up to their criminal histories. The problem is that by focusing exclusively on the criminal parts of people's histories, this is something that I urged Very strongly for people to do in my book, Learning from the Germans, talking about the ways in which other countries could learn from the Germans' historical reckoning with the Nazi past for other forms of national crimes. If that's all you focus on, you wind up concluding that all history is criminal and it's extremely difficult to come up with a robust concept of progress in history.
1: What you've singled out or tripled out is some commonalities and some main themes in what you are terming woke. And I know the currents to which you're referring. The problem I have is that in the, the U.S. context, people don't necessarily refer to those things that complex of of things, and they're referring more to like teaching anything other than uh, an American exceptionalist sanitized version of American history as woke. So my question is still, when you say this is woke, it's clearly not the case that everybody who's using the term woke is, is referring to these ideological themes, right? So they are, are referring more to policies, anti-racist actions, some kind of diversity, all, all kinds of things, God knows. But I'm, I'm somewhat concerned that when you say this is what woke is,
2: I'm trying to understand the status of That is So look, you keep saying in the U.S. context as if I didn't know what was going on in the U.S. As a matter of fact, I, I am sitting in my study in Berlin. I am in constant contact with people in the U.S. I just spent six weeks there. And we are going through and... England, in Scotland, in Holland, in Belgium, in Germany, France is slightly different, but it has its own debate over the wokeism. You know, these, these are not exclusively American questions, all right? The right seeks to use some of the missteps of the left for its own purposes and to demonize any attempt at social justice or at looking at national crimes as woke. At the same time, in the almost six weeks that I just spent in the States, I did not meet a single person was not complaining about some aspect of woke uh, and this was long before I mentioned my book, okay, just meeting, by the way that happens to me in enough in Berlin now, uh, I don't have a lot of right-wing friends, in fact I don't have any right-wing friends, frankly, so I was not meeting people who would ever dream in 100 years of supporting Ron DeSantis or suppressing Toni Morrison's books okay, I'm talking about people who actually, on the contrary, for example, are disturbed by the ways in which cultural appropriation, so-called, has become a norm that says only people who come from one culture or another can portray, discuss, teach, or write about that culture. And that's actually a racist concept. It goes back to the Nazis who didn't think that Jews or non-Aryans should be able to play Aryan music. Let's just take that as an example. You know that it's happening. Um, You know that it's happening in universities. You know that it's happening in the gatekeepers of the cultural world where certain critical books are not being published, if they are published, they're not mentioned, they can have a sort of semi underground life. I mean, underground is, is, is probably too harsh a word. But if you mention certain authors, let's say people of color, who do not feel that race is the most important concept in the world, and who reject the idea that people of color are fundamentally victims, always. Uh, This is not to say that they deny the existence of systemic racism. Uh, It would be silly to deny that. It's like denying that the earth is round. But um, people who do not think that all politics should be based on concepts of race are very much marginalized at the moment.
0: I I think that one of the things that was hard for me in reading your book is that I think maybe that I don't inhabit the same world as you because like I don't know anyone who uh, complains to me about some aspect of woke culture. And I don't honestly like encounter the sort of ideological currents that you're referring to like they all sound familiar some of the things you have mentioned like I'm aware that those ideas exist somewhere out there but I don't run into them on a day-to-day basis do you think that these are more like academic trends that you're referring to or do they you think they appear like in the streets and the actual freedom struggles that people are engaged in and like they're fighting against racism misogyny etc
2: in the U.S.? So I'm surprised that our circles are that different, but um, maybe they are. Let me take an example I'm looking for, if I can read it, that I used early on in the book. New York Times 2021. Despite Vice President Kamala D. Harris's Indian roots, the Biden administration may prove less forgiving over Modi's Hindu nationalist agenda. Frankly, I wish that were the case now, end quote. I wish that were the case, since Biden, like every other major leader, has been cozying up to Modi like nobody's business. What I'm talking about is not somebody who's sitting around reading Foucault all day, okay, or Carl Schmidt. all right? I'm talking about the ways in which their theoretical uh, assumptions drip into reporting. Do you see anything wrong with that sentence? Well,
0: I remember this from your book, and I was very confused by this example. I mean, from my understanding of what you were saying in the book was that you thought the New York Times was reducing the Biden administration's potential politics to India to Kamala Harris's ethnicity, right?
1: Right. But but the the point was more that the presumption that Kamala Harris should think a certain way because she's of Indian extraction.
0: But to me, that doesn't sound like woke at all. It sounds like the opposite of woke. It sounds like someone making very racist assumptions about Kamala Harris's politics based on her ethnicity. So how is that? It sounds like the opposite of woke.
2: First of all... I mean, you're right. It it should be taken to be uh, racist, but it's used all the time on the left. There's certain views that people of color are supposed to. But
0: people on the left do the opposite. They always say like, "Don't don't act like all women have the same opinion, or that all black people think that have the same you know politics." I hear that all the time from people well, on the left as a way of chiding people for reducing people to like a stereotype well, so i don't i didn't understand that example in your book
2: i'm sorry then I'm, I'm really glad that you're still hearing that because i'm not i'm hearing on the contrary um john McWhorter is an uncle tom or thomas chatterton uh williams is an uncle tom because they here's an example that you must remember this is like a year and a half ago the democratic socialists of america of all people Canceled a keynote address by Adolf Reed because Reed refuses to privilege race in his political analyses. How's that for It's not the New York Times; it's the Democratic Socialist of America. I, I, I'm very glad that you're hearing people who are uh, are not reducing people to their ethnic origins. But I get it all the time. What about the claims that only people of of a certain race are allowed to study work of a certain uh, Of a different race. I mean, it's all over the
0: place. People, sorry, say that again. People claim you can't study another culture? Yeah. That's news to me. I didn't know that that was a thing.
2: I have a friend who is one of the most distinguished students of India in the world, Wendy Doniger. She also happens to have gone afoul of the Modi regime and has had to have an armed guard because she got death threats for a while. She's retired now. She's extremely well-known. She happens to be a white Jewish woman from Long Island, okay? She says she, she's glad to be retired. She cannot get any of her students in South Asian studies who are not themselves South Asian a job. And I hear that over and over and over. You haven't heard things like that?
0: No, I'm not an academic. I haven't heard of I believe you. You tell me those things. I'm just saying that that seems like a very academic perspective on things like you're in the academic world this sort of politics are probably very current you know common in the, the academy but i just don't interface with them i don't run into them they don't come up in my day-to-day life i just don't know anything about them it's not my world
1: well, I'm, a, I'm a retired academic i have more a lot more familiarity with what Susan is referring to, not only in academia, also on on Facebook.
0: Yeah, I also don't go on Facebook or Twitter, so I don't I don't hang out in those worlds.
1: Right. I, I had delusion me attacking me, and this was maybe 2015 because yeah. I, I just rejected their idea that. Somebody who is not a woman can weigh in on issues pertaining to women, and that it shouldn't be that we just, you know, listen to to their voices, and that they have some privileged status by virtue of of, of being a woman and i'm saying what about like i think i chose phyllis schlafly an old right-wing woman but no this has been going on for a very long time and it it does trickle into the new york times and into regular politics and all of that it's not just academic but i wanted to say on in regard to your example of modi and indian kamala harris i think you made the remark and i think it's the, the really most important thing here is that when People make this equation of of someone's ethnic origin or background, and just presumption of here's how they think. What what this does is it effaces, eliminates the internal opposition within every nation, within every culture. I, I think that that is the most pernicious effect of this uh, Marxist-Humanist initiative is grounded in the, in the work of Raya Dunyevskaya, a Marxist-Humanist philosopher, and she emphasized again and again, there are two worlds in every country. Uh, and so I think it's incredibly important you know, for us as internationalists To, and and you do mention internationalism a lot in the book, It's, it's, it's important to push back against this, even though it may look like it's somehow progressive to be looking at marginalized countries and so forth, there's always internal opposition. And you got to go with the people fighting for freedom against the people fighting for unfreedom. And this does not break down neatly on national lines or or gender lines or or race lines
2: exclusively. Exactly. Thank you. That is my view. And I mean, the the crazy thing about that New York Times quote, which I thought was so telling, is the, the people who Consider Modi a fascist, people who have are living with death threats right now, and not only inside India, but outside it, because they're hit squads by the oldest fascist military unit in the world, the RSS, Those are Indians who know about that, you know, so the assumption that because Kamala Harris's mother was Indian is automatically going to support Modi's Hindu right wing nationalism is, you know, it's a sign of utter ignorance. But, you know, let me go back to the question of academia or non-academia. I'm not really an academic either. I mean, I work in a public institution. I left the university 23 years ago precisely because I like being a voice that brings often complicated intellectual questions into the public discourse. I do that in Germany, in all kinds of media, and uh, in my daily work. So I'm really not talking about some arcane discussion that's going on somewhere, even if it starts in the universities, which I think it does, or it, I mean, it just historically, we know that these kind of tendencies started not so long ago, Andrew. I think 2015 was uh, early. It was kind of the beginning. We didn't even use the word woke yet. People talked sometimes about political correctness to describe similar issues, but it's It's a new movement, but even if it starts at the universities and you may see it at its most intense there, most people who go on to be publishers or journalists or run cultural institutions, most of them did go to university, okay? And so whether or not they remember a chapter and verse of the theory that they little bit of theory. I'm not even talking about people who've studied philosophy or political science. Even if they don't remember chapter and verse of what they read in college, they are influenced by it. And it deeply influences things like what's published, what plays are, are shown, who can direct them. It's an interesting story. I just met a woman when I was uh, traveling and introducing my book. A distinguished playwright who had written long ago a play involving black characters. And she was pleased that it was being revived and was going to be on, I think, in Broadway. But she wouldn't be allowed to direct it, even though she's also been a director because she was a white woman. You know, it's funny because on the other hand, we have Hamilton and Bridgerton. And so the the cultural appropriation is, you know, it doesn't go both ways. But, I mean, that's, again, an example of the kind of thing that suggests that only people of a certain gender or ethnicity are allowed to speak for or speak about that gender or ethnicity. And it's an exaggeration, first of all, of you know the very true worry that our cultural systems have not been as diverse as they should have been, but to you know, diversity is a good, it cannot be the only good, all right? And it's often treated as if it's the only good. Does that resonate with anything that you've experienced, Brendan?
0: Yes. You know, I've had, I, I have heard those kind of conversations. I mean, I, it's complicated. I mean, in the arts and music, these are conversations that are very old and very complicated and nuanced. It's, I, think, I find it hard to make generalizations about them.
2: I mean, there was, for example, Amanda Gorman, who was the the poet laureate, read at at Biden's inauguration. You probably, I I don't know if this even got into the American press, but all over Europe there was someone, um, an Afro-Dutch person complained that the translator of, and Gorman's book was immediately translated into a whole bunch of languages, complained that the translator was white, she was non-binary, she was a very good poet, and she had been picked out by Gorman herself. That was Gorman's choice. She'd read some of her work. But that she should not be allowed to uh, translate the book because she wasn't African. Um, Well, she she should have been, uh, according to this Dutch blogger, She should have been Black, and that would have done it. And so all over Europe, you had all these countries. In some cases, the translation was already done. They paid for the translation, but they they didn't publish it. Germany, in its wisdom and its liking of committees, decided to have three people (laughs) translate the book. You know, once again, the idea that, you know, if we carried this kind of view to its logical conclusion, certainly nobody could... Translate Homer or even presumably read him because we don't have any eighth century BCE Greeks lying around to, to do the translation. But, you know, again, this is something that affects quite a lot more than university seminars, it trickles into the general culture. And I should add that I have friends of color who are just as angry about it as I am. And I'll tell you why they're angry about it, or at least one of the reasons they're angry about it, because they feel that it cheapens and trivializes their own creative achievement, okay? That is, if any old person of color would do for this or that task, then the particular efforts they have made to be creative are simply not taken seriously. By the way, I've experienced that as a woman. There are certain ways in which Europe, or Germany in particular, which is where I work, is ahead of the United States, not in terms of sexism. So, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I notice... That um, actually, somebody has asked me, has invited me to, to do something because they need a woman, as it's said. This sort of thing still happens in the U.S., but people are not so crude as to mention it. It gets mentioned to me all the time. I don't know if either. I'm assuming. So I can't see you. So I, I'm, I'm just assuming you're both white men um, from the names. Am I right? Well, okay. I I am Jewish like you. Ah yes. Uh, and, and my
1: my attitude towards the whole white issue is very similar to yours.
2: Yeah. Okay. Jews are a very interesting category. And I have a number of friends who insist that, you know, Jews are not white people. My answer to one friend who was making this argument and has very long dreadlocks was, yeah, I see your point, except I would worry about you in certain areas of the United States where I don't have to worry about myself. Um, You know, so there are differences. But certainly, when I was growing up in the American South, Jews were you know, sort of on the edge of being white people, but not really. For Brandon, who sounds Irish uh, originally, is that am I guessing right on that? Yes, Brandon Cooney. yeah, well, of course, you know, there's a good book called "How the Irish Became White." Both the Irish and the Jews in the 19th century were not considered to be real white people. And uh, I have, friends of Irish background in Britain who said, you know, even up to the, through the sixties and seventies, they were told by their parents not to mention that the family came from Ireland. Okay. So just one more reason for the binary between whiteness and people of color to be thrown into question.
0: Um, You you have a a bunch of discussion in the book about the need to, Replace tribalist thinking with universalist thinking on the left. I wonder if we could get into some of those things, and and I guess maybe in answering this question, we I I sometimes have a hard time understanding if you're when you use the word woke, you're referring to just certain ideological trends within parts of the left, or if you think like this is a sort of paradigm of thinking that has supplanted other types of thinking in freedom movements today. So for instance, you say that the, in your book, that the Black Lives Matter movement started off with these universalist impulses, but quickly became tribalist. But then you don't really give an example for what you mean by that. Like what, I don't, so I didn't understand what that claim was about.
2: So... The beginning of Black Lives Matter, there are people who count numbers on this, Um, more than half of the people who were out on the streets in the middle of a plague where there was not yet a vaccination were white people. But very quickly, white people who were very committed um, began to be criticized, not necessarily by black people, that's the interesting thing, by other white people often enough for uh, having a white savior complex for centering themselves and bringing too much attention on themselves. And, you know, the the word ally began to be used. Yes, it was possible for white people to be allies. I reject the word ally. I'm not an ally. Uh, I bring up the example, the most famous example of allies in the 20th century, certainly, uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, who were allied against the Nazis as long as they shared one common interest. But they did not share values. They did not share long-term goals. And as soon as the Nazis were defeated, we saw... Truman trying to frighten the Soviet Union by dropping a bomb that did not need to be dropped. Anybody interested in that story who doesn't know it can find a paper on my website called Forgetting Hiroshima. And so the Cold War started. So the Allies who had fought together, it's quite interesting. You can still find bits of old war propaganda us war propaganda praising uncle joe stalin and uh, the brave soviet people and uh, all of that who then suddenly turned into monsters so this is not the kind of a relationship that i have to struggles for freedom and justice i view there's there's an old song called medgar ever's lullaby that ends with the words all men are slaves till their brothers are free and I think that's right. I think until all of us are living in some relatively just society, we are all of us constrained by it, even if we manage to repress that fact. So, but that's not being an ally that's having solidarity and that's seeing this as a question of fundamental human rights. I also quote Hannah Arendt who argued that Eichmann should not have been indicted for crimes against the Jewish people, but for crimes against humanity. And I think that's exactly right. And it was an important and prescient thought of hers that is more important I think every day. So if I supported Black Lives Matter, it was not, you know, out of any kind of tribal impulse, either, either of my own belonging or my own guilt, but it was because I believe in human rights.
0: Oh, uh, well, I thought that discussion in your book was well argued, and I think the concept of universalism that you're getting to there and finding the universalist impulse in any freedom struggle is, is the right approach. I was just, and, 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 you know, hearing you describe, like, the reaction of uh, this discussion of allyship and criticizing white people's role in the movement, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I've heard those sort of things before, but I just don't ever recall hearing that in the past four years. If you tell me that it happened, I would believe you, but it was not on my radar at all.
1: Don't you remember the Black Squares incident?
0: No, I don't know what the... Oh, no. Okay. No. And I follow the Black Lives movement closely. I've got books on my shelf about it. I listen to the local Black Talk radio every morning talking about these issues here in Philadelphia, and I don't okay. ever remember discussions the, like okay. this happening. The, the,
1: the Black Squares thing was a very big deal.
0: I don't hang out on Twitter, and I'm not in college.
1: Okay, so uh, yeah, it, it's Twitter, but I mean, twi- Twitter was, you know, tens of millions of people. Uh,
0: and, and a lot of bots and fake accounts. I, I find out about Twitter, like, if it's big enough to land in the New York Times, so every once in to- well,
1: I, I'm sure this landed in the New York Times. You know, and, and in that in that case, I I think that there actually is a positive element. Although I agree with what you say about allyship, there was a positive element in that. What I think. The, the positive element in this was this is a, a struggle for all lives, but it's a struggle for Black lives, which are not viewed as, as real lives, as equal lives. And you have to take your direction from the Black movement and not impose your own concerns. And the, the issue of Black Squares was all of a sudden, people say, hey, how can I express solidarity? Well, we're going to put up Black Squares as memes on social media, Twitter, or, or whatever. And I don't even remember the, the Thinking, but 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 somehow this was ill thought out. But it sort of just took off, and it took off among white people who wanted to express uh, allyship. And it's 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 really a matter of not respecting the thought and the the history and the depth of, of the struggle entering in into it kind of like all of a sudden as if it's something new and just making of it what you want. I mean, this has always been a feature of, of all kinds of social movements that people do this who come in all, all of a sudden. But I, I think that, that there were real issues here. I, I mean, I do agree with what you say about allyship, but I think that there were real issues of, of people not understanding that they need to plug into a black led movement and why it, it needs to be kind of like led by black people.
2: I wouldn't disagree with that, but it went into overdrive and it wound up depriving itself of a lot of energy that could have been helpful. Look, let's, let's look and that. This is one thing that the book tries to do a bit. Let's look a little bit historically. Okay. What was foundational for the right Historically, and what's still foundational to the right is the idea that your deep connections and therefore your real obligations only involve people from your tribe, where the tribe is often, you know, it's larger or smaller, but those are the only people that you're ever really going to connect with. And the fundamental difference between right and left was the idea that, no, you can connect with and have obligations to people across the entire world, not simply people who are members of your own tribe or your own clan. And what is so unfortunate and so disturbing is that many voices on what's called the woke left, and I'm exactly challenging. Challenging the idea that it's left is to say that tribalism is the fundamental driving force of human nature and it's the thing that needs to be respected or we are overstepping important boundaries. It's a reversal of the same concepts and it's meant with the progressive air, but I think it's devastating.
0: Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clark, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
3: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are Faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas, that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
1: I got a sense from reading your book that you think that the fight against rising fascism globally is a very important fight in the U.S., elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's really great because it's hard a lot of times to get people on the left to take that seriously. I also got the sense that you think that the stances and ideologies on the left that you're calling woke, I got the sense that you think that they are hindering somehow the fight against fascism. They very to... much are. Okay, so how do you think that they are hindering the fight?
2: So they're doing two things. One is they're depriving people who consider themselves left of people who would be real allies by alienating them so far that they're moving towards the right. And I don't know if there's actually a you know a really good general study, but we know that it's happening. People are just saying, no, I cannot stand this woke discourse, either I'm resigning from political activism altogether, I know people who've gone in that direction, or I'm going to move towards the center or even center-right, or I can't possibly countenance doing that because I've always been on the left, but I'm not going to put any energy into any left-wing fight because I'm terrified that I might say something that goes against woke orthodoxy and be canceled or or just simply shunned in some way that makes me unwilling to engage in political act. Action or in a serious way. And I'll tell you that I know longtime activists that this is happening to. I end the book by reminding readers who may have forgotten it that the Nazis did not come to power through a popular election. They were in a minority. I have seen newspapers from the last day of before the 1933 elections that say, Berlin stays red. Berlin was always a left wing town, but throughout Germany, the combined communists and socialists had a majority of votes. Okay. And well, they, they did in that election, but they fought each other so bitterly that the fascists came to power. It's a story that you had in other places in Europe, but nowhere as dramatically. And I'm really quite afraid of, about that.
1: Yeah, and the leaders of the German Communist Party who said after Hitler, our turn, so let's not cooperate with the social fascists, it didn't work out so well for them. They Precisely. wound up in prison. Yeah, if they were lucky, it, it was prison.
0: I just want to, if you could clarify for our listeners, you're talking about people on the left who are sort of disillusioned or frustrated with freedom struggles because they encounter these ideological themes that make it difficult for them to participate in movements. I just want to make sure that listeners understand that I assume that... You're not making a different claim that we sometimes do hear on the left, and that's that that so-called wokeism is alienating like working class white voters who would otherwise be like amenable to social democratic politics if they weren't if they weren't like triggered by people talking about race.
2: It's doing that too, by the way. I mean, uh, it's alienating a lot of people, but yes, also those people who ought to be able to be brought together in, one would hope, a social democratic coalition. Yeah, it isn't because I think those people are necessarily inherently racist, but because to talk about white privilege to poor white people who have really no privilege but the color of their skin, whose lives are very hemmed in by all kinds of things, and who are living under enormous pressure, many pressures that they don't even realize, I understand the alienation that keeps them from joining any sort of left-leaning movement. So
0: you think that if the presentation of like freedom, for instance, like black freedom struggles is, is turning those voters toward authoritarianism because it's presented in a way in which they don't see a universal aspect to the politics?
2: That's right. Um, Look, here's a good example, which is um, in popular culture, we are not talking about the universities, okay? The 1619 Project, you know, which um, I greeted initially. I thought there were some problems with it, but I thought as a push to a popular discussion, it might be a good thing. It quickly became clear to me that by writing off every form of criticism of the project as racist, that the editors were digging themselves in a hole that's not compatible with good journalistic practices. Now, here's one example that I think was absolutely devastating. 1619 Project, or rather Nicole Hannah-Jones, claims that uh, every, every push... For black liberation was led by black people, okay, that, that white people played no serious role. There were no serious white allies in the freedom struggle. And that's a claim that was made in the film Underground Railroad. I don't know if you saw it, but again, here we're not talking about the university, we're talking about popular culture. Did you see that? No. 10 part television series, which people were saying would replace Gone With The Wind, which Lord knows needs to be replaced. And Barry Jenkins is a very good filmmaker. No, no takers here? Well, the problem with that 10-part television series, there were a couple of problems, but one was it really did... Depict, it was sort of gone with the wind in reverse. All of the good people, the loyal people, the strong people, the warm people, the creative people, the brave people, they were all black. And all of the white people was one or another version of horrible. Except for one person who wound up, however, being the, the father of the slave catcher, who was the worst person in the whole story. Jenkins loves Hannah Jones. He, when she was named one of Times' People of the Year, he was the one who wrote the, you know, the Laudazio. So to pass this version of black freedom struggles on into popular culture, is to say white people never did anything but torture in one form or another, or at the very least, never have the courage to stand up for black people. This is just historically false, completely false. Any history of the freedom struggle or of the Underground Railroad, for that matter, will tell you that. And during the civil rights movement, white people who went and volunteered in the South, actually got killed. Now, this is something that I like to quote Brian Stevenson, who is certainly not a white man. Brian Stevenson, who I had the uh, privilege of interviewing when, when I wrote my last book, said, There were white people in the South who stood up against slavery and lynching, and you don't know their names. The fact that you don't know their names is a problem because if we had monuments to those people, we had memories of those people, we could build a new narrative of Southern history. So what we need to do is to build a narrative of a freedom struggle, of a time going all the way through the 40s when there were multiracial, I wouldn't even call them coalitions, they were just multiracial activists I believe all of whom were some form of socialist, and of course many forms were permissible in those days, who realized that the attempt to divide people according to race is something that's you know in the interest of capitalism and basically nothing else.
0: Well, and just a further clarification or continuation, you know, there's some people I think on the left who would who would assu- who assume that the only thing that's universal is talking about class. And so that talking about race and racism in the in the US for instance is problematic for like the building of a social democratic uh socialist base. And so they want to downplay talking about race and race fighting against racism and just appeal to people on economic issues, income redistribution, things like that. But my understanding is you're not saying that fighting against racism is inherently tribalistic. You're saying that there are universalist impulses in that struggle. And that the way for the left to address those freedom movements is to appeal to the universalist impulses in those movements and to argue against the tribalist impulses in those movements. Am I correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. And I I mean, let me say a word about class. I certainly think focusing on income inequality is extremely important, partly because it's the way that capital seeks to divide us, right? I mean, it's it's not an accident that this very neoliberal economy has all gone for, you know, DEI training, right? I mean, every corporation in America is spending millions on diversity excesses. And then you have cases like the case just um, recently in the strike at New School, where 85% of the courses were taught by adjunct professors who were getting paid $4,000 a course in New York City (laughs) with virtually no benefits. But the three top administrators of the New School are all Black. And When the faculty went on strike, they were accused by the president, who's black and gay, of sullying the progressive brand of the new school. Now, the fact that the administration has salaries in the millions and are fighting against anything that would seem to be a living, close to a living wage for the people who are actually doing the work of teaching is outrageous. And yet that just happens. The strike was settled in, I believe, December. Okay, But that was the, the discussion. There can't possibly be anything unprogressive in the decisions of this administration because we're all black. So anyway, we do need to focus on income. We need to focus On the fact that things which are considered to be rights in many parts of the world, certainly in all over Europe, even under conservative governments, are considered to be benefits or safety nets or entitlements. So... Americans tend not even to realize how little they have in not having health care, in not having sick leave, in not having vacation, in not having parental leave, in not having a whole host of workers' rights that people absolutely take for granted in the rest of the world. If people had them, they might be able to stop running in the rat race and think about the conditions under which they're living. So yes, I'm in favor of talking more about income inequality, but I said it was a socialist. I'm not a Marxist because I'm not a reductionist of any kind. I don't believe in class reductionism any more than I believe in race reductionism. Once again, I, I think people have lots of identities. It's very hard these days to say exactly what class someone comes from, even as as it's getting increasingly hard to say what race people come from, given I think something like 25% of Americans were desc- just uh, accurately described as mixed race, I and mean, parents of two different races. Now, sometimes people choose. Nicole Hannah-Jones chooses to identify as a Black woman, but she was uh, raised by a white mother. So people can do that if they want to make their lives easy. I'm suggesting that they make their lives a little more difficult. I don't know what class I belong to, actually. I have my life's history has elements of, uh, of several. So I would prefer not to reduce people to these simple binary categories, they may have made more sense in Marx's day. I don't think they make a lot of sense now.
1: Well, I, you know, I'm a Marxist, I'm a Marxist humanist, and I'm, I'm not a reductionist. And it, it, in Marx's work, in fact, the whole issue of class is not a matter of an individual's identity. It's it's not a sociological category, at least primarily, and I would say mostly secondarily. I mean, Marx wrote in Capital, he said, he was referring to small shopkeepers who are not doing real well, they, you know, they've got all kinds of problems. He says they are their own capitalists, they are their own proletarians. In other words, they, they've got certain interests as owners, but since because of the way they work, they're exploiting themselves, they're also proletarians. So it's, it's not an issue of a person's identity, but uh, of the relations of production. I just wanted to say that because the discussion of of class has gotten totally confused in post-Marx Marxists, and there's a real scientific scholarly core that, that has kind of gotten eclipsed.
0: Well, we are running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up the conversation now. But I do hope listeners check out the book. There's a lot in there that we have not touched on, a lot of provocative and interesting things that Susan has to say about these topics Uh, Susan, thank you so much for being on Radio Free Humanity today. Thank you. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.